0: Hi, I'm Jasmina Agonovic and I'm the CEO of Arkea. And to me, it's a matter of biology.
1: I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. In our hyper-connected world where faster is perceived to be better and success is predicated on moving forward, sometimes we lose sight of solutions that lie in the past. Sitting at the intersection of science and creativity, Jasmina Yoganovic, CEO of Arkea, believes the power of biology can be used as a creative tool for self-expression and unlocking the future of beauty. Hi, Jasmina. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi,
0: Kelly. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Of course. Your
0: entrepreneurial path
1: is certainly an interesting one. Can you share a little bit how a chemical and biological engineer from MIT ends up as a beauty and consumer goods entrepreneur?
0: (laughs) And that's not a linear path. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, I think a lot of people can relate to career paths not always being really linear, and that was certainly the case for me. Listen, chemical engineering is actually a pretty common background for a lot of technical people in beauty and personal care, and a lot of people might not know about that. However, despite that, I would say that beauty and personal care was not as on my radar as you might have thought. It was actually in my junior and senior year when I was finishing up my degree that a couple of things clicked for me. And I made the decision to work in this industry. MIT doesn't really have a path to move into beauty and personal care, so I had to go it alone. So that was sort of where it all started. It
1: is interesting because when people think of the beauty industry, everyone thinks of New York and increasingly L.A., but Boston is also sort of the home to a lot of great beauty brands. I mean, Fresh being one of them, Living Proof being another. So there is sort of a beauty startup community in Boston that's not really talked about very much.
0: Yeah, I guess not. Even when I found out that Fresh was located in Boston, I was surprised. And I had the very lucky opportunity to be able to work in that office for a short period of time. And I don't know what it is. I mean, it might have to do with elements of innovation that are really happening here in Boston, which is why I've certainly stayed here. But then there's also a lot of movement into New York and especially LA recently. So the industry is certainly in flux.
1: Before we dive into your new venture, I'd love to talk a little bit about Mother Dirt, because that I think, kind of put you in a forward facing role in the beauty industry and where a lot of people sort of got to know you. You launched it in 2015. So you're very early on in the microbiome conversation. And it was sort of, I guess, an interesting way to launch a brand was more of like an intrapreneur, I guess it's called, because it was done within the confines of a biotech company. But what was the impetus for launching the brand?
0: Yeah, well, a few moments ago, you had asked me about my career and how I got into beauty and personal care. And a lot of that has to do with the setup to Mother Dirt, right? So I had a technical background. I was very interested in this industry industry. And I was specifically interested in how innovation was articulated through brands and products. So that was something that I really enjoyed looking into, understanding, developing. I would say that that's my sweet spot. And so, fast forward to Mother Dirt. So, prior, I had been at companies like Living Proof, which had come out of the same lab I had worked in when I was at MIT, and learned a lot there about innovation in hair care and how that can be translated. A lot of the learnings from that experience were top of mind for me when I had joined a biotherapeutics company called AoBiome and their technology was a bacteria. And so it's funny like you wouldn't really think about this like squishy <laughs> living cell as like technology, but it is. Biology in many ways is much more sophisticated than modern technology as we think about it. And so I joined in 2014. They were doing clinical research on uh, drug-related uses. However, they had done a very interesting cosmetic clinical study. And this idea of reframing our modern notion of what it means to be clean and healthy started to emerge as a discussion. And so the idea to launch a brand was birthed out of that being, what if we could create a brand that exists to start a discussion around cleanliness not being associated with sterility, and that that sterility could actually be associated with the absence of health. And so that started us on the journey of Mother Dirt, and it was quite an interesting four years being there, but an experience that I so enjoyed and was really grateful to have.
1: Were there any learnings that you sort of applied to what you're doing now from that experience?
0: Absolutely. There were so many. Some of those threads started during my time at Living Proof. I would say when I was at Living Proof, I was of the point of view that if you have great science, consumers will see it. And I learned that that is not the case, right?
1: I also learned that a very hard way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And for me, I think originally it was like heartbreaking, right? Because there I was, I'm like technical by training and I'm obsessed with the science. And that was all I wanted to talk about when, when I was at Living Proof doing my role there, which was more consumer facing, but I then became curious about it. And I knew that the science did matter, right? Because people want to know that their products work. They want to know that their products are safe. So science certainly does matter, And I think the big learning that also emerged during Mother Dirt was that the point in time is fluid. It's expansive. It isn't just about when you talk about the brand for the first time, the role that the science plays just in that one moment. That is not what it is. It is actually a series of experiences that you take the consumer through and the role that the science will play will be at a different slot, if you will, depending on where they are in their experience. And so what some people think is that your most important thing needs to come first, if it is your most important thing. And if the science doesn't come first in that communication, the messaging, the branding, the visuals, then you think that science is not important. And that is Absolutely not true. The science can play a prominent role further into the customer experience and be critical in bringing that customer back and building trust and credibility and equity in that brand. But just because it doesn't come first does not mean that it's not important. And so I think that the conflation of what comes first and then the ignoring of the whole journey and all of the different levers you have to pull over that is the area that's top of mind for me and certainly something that we were thinking a lot about at Mother Dirt.
1: It's interesting you say that because very often science-backed brands, they do lead with the science. When, to your point, while it's super important, the most important thing is to get that initial purchase. And getting someone sort of that invested in understanding the science is kind of a heavy lift for a first purchase. So what you're saying makes total sense.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing that I would add is feeling like the science message needs to come across intensely is very, I want to say like self-centric, right? It's very self-centric of the brand. In reality, you need to be thinking about your consumer and your consumer's point of view and where they are and meeting them where they are. And that is where you start, right? Rather than starting from the point of view of what you think is most important, what really matters in that first engagement and the introduction is what that consumer thinks is important and what they are looking for and really understanding their state of mind. Biotech
1: beauty is carving out its own space in the beauty sector and also in conversations about sustainability. You spent two years as an entrepreneur in residence at the leading biotech company, Ginkgo Bioworks. Can you share a little bit about that program and how it birthed your new venture, Archaea?
0: So the journey over to ginkgo was influenced in many ways by the experience and the learnings at Mother Dirt, right? So we were working with the live bacteria as it's kind of the core technology of our hero product, which was this probiotic mist. And what we were seeing was that we had no tools really to work with, right? We had very few ingredients that were compatible or tested to be compatible with the microbiome there were very little understood ways to harness the microbiome. Our methods we used for validation around performance needed to be looked at separately because skincare typically is, you know, you have an active ingredient, you apply it on the skin and then it absorbs and you're done. But with a something with a living metabolism, right, you apply it to your skin and then it is there constantly doing what it's doing. Well, how do you measure that, right? And then how do you manufacture it? And then how do you ship it? And so you asked me earlier about all the learnings that we had, and you could imagine there were so many learnings that we had as we were trying to manage these questions. But I think the summary that I would have is that I was so astounded at how powerful biology was and the things that biology could do that our current tool set based in chemistry could not. And what I observed the industry trying to do was to try and retrofit biology into how we've been evolving this industry for the last 200 years. And instead, I was interested in building around biology. I was basically asking myself, like, well, how do we build new tools to make this come to life and kind of build out a more powerful kind of future set of products? And no one was doing that. And so I came over to Ginkgo. Ginkgo is based in Boston, here in the seaport, and they have hundreds of thousands of square feet of what are called foundries. And this is basically biology in high throughput. I would say like over 80% of the people that work at Ginkgo probably have PhDs, right? And that's not me, right? My background is technical, but I certainly don't have a PhD in anything related to like protein engineering or biological engineering to that degree. So I definitely was entering wondering, like, what is all of this capable of? And how can this build a future tool set for the beauty and the personal care industry? And that was really the seed that eventually became Archaea about two years later.
1: It's interesting because there's been so much innovation that's happened on the consumer facing side of the beauty industry, largely driven by the rise of social media and technology that's lowered the bar to entry for launching beauty brands. But so much of the beauty value chain has been slower to evolve to keep up with the demands of consumers and brands. And in some ways, it's incredibly shocking how archaic some of the supply chain is for the industry. But it's beginning to change what do you think the future of ingredient companies look like? Because on the supply chain side, there is sort of a whole set of strategics that have been doing things a certain way for a very long time.
0: Yeah. So you're hitting on such an important point. And this was a learning during kind of my research phase of that EIR role that I had at Ginkgo that was really illuminating for me to actually understand why the value chain of the industry is the way that it is. And I'm just going to take a couple of moments to kind of share what I had learned so that people can understand why the supply chain feels as like constricted as it is. So many decades ago, the market effectively was owned by the multinationals. And the multinationals were effectively completely vertically integrated. And when I say vertically integrated, I mean that they did everything. They did ingredient sourcing. They did hardcore R&D. They did manufacturing. They did marketing. They did everything. And then over time, they started to make the decision, I think for financial reasons, to carve off some of these elements of their operation because many of these things were very capital intensive, right? So like why run and operate an entire manufacturing facility when you could just carve that off and sell it off as an asset and basically hire someone to do your manufacturing runs in the future, for example. Why would they do ingredient sourcing anymore and very expensive and risky R&D? And so all of this started to get carved off. And what that meant was the birthing of the value chain of the industry. So instead of having companies that were vertically integrated, they carved off all of these assets. And you then had an entire value chain that went from ingredient sourcing to ingredient development to contract labs to contract manufacturers to finished goods and brands. And so now we have this value chain. And so where do we think innovation belongs? And I actually don't know that there's an answer today, which I think is the reason why we haven't seen a ton of technical innovation. And effectively, what I learned as I was talking to people across this whole value chain is that Everyone's expectation is that the person before them is going to do the risky and the more cost-associated innovation and R&D. And what that meant is that all of that responsibility would fall on the ingredient suppliers or the ingredient sourcers. But if you look at their business from a financial standpoint... It is very difficult for them to justify quantum leaps in innovation, right? Your typical ingredient is maybe doing a couple million dollars, if at all, in sales because the use percentages are so small and the industry is so saturated. So why would they invest $50 million to completely change the supply chain away from petrochemicals, which are so cheap because we've been investing in industrial chemistry for 200 years, So effectively, the observation here is that the existing tool set is highly evolved, so it's really cost competitive, so it's hard for innovation to compete with that. And then the financials for ingredient suppliers make it difficult to invest in innovation. The easier points of access to innovate have been on marketing and positioning and branding. And this has been, I think, a really important evolution for the industry, because now we are finally starting to see entire groups that have been fundamentally underrepresented in beauty finally starting to show up, right? There's like more work that needs to be done, but the tools and the pipeline is not evolving, I think, to keep up with where consumers want to see this industry grow. So a little bit of a long kind of overview there, but that is like a history perspective over the last several decades and even 200 years was really impactful for me to understand as we tried to understand why things are the way that they are currently.
1: No, and I'm glad you shared that because I don't think a lot of, especially young founders today, understand the legacy thinking that has created the establishment as it exists. And jumping off of that, cosmetic ingredients have been made in labs for decades. I mean, you just mentioned that. But we had this nebulous concept of clean beauty that took hold of the beauty industry, coupled with consumers' demand for transparency and sustainability. And it's been the impetus for really interesting conversations and considerations down to the ingredient level. So, you know, there's definitely this clean beauty evolution has gone from what's not in products. Some people think that it should only be natural products. I mean, everyone has their own opinion of what clean is. From your perspective, how have these drivers impacted ingredient companies? You know, on the ingredient level, and throughout the supply chain, it was really a black box, like everything was tied up in IP, we can't talk about that. And that narrative just doesn't fly anymore.
0: And one other thing that I'll point out is the way that the industry has evolved has made it even more challenging to answer those questions. I was talking to someone several weeks ago, and they used this phrase that I loved, which was that so much of the supply chain is chemical tourism, right? Like things are sourced from this one part of the planet, taken to this other part of the planet to be processed, and then taken to this other part of the planet to be like used in something. And it's very inefficient, but I think the other challenge that we've seen, especially as the industry has been shifting more and more towards plant based sourcing to try and service the demand for quote unquote clean. There has been challenges with that that I think consumers didn't fully anticipate, right? And it's not, I don't believe that it's like the consumer's responsibility to anticipate this stuff. I think that it's like the industry's responsibility. But the types of stuff that's been happening is like you would have a a grower or a farmer that is growing some sort of a plant that's going to be harvested for the creation of an active ingredient or an ingredient in the industry. And then the demand grows so that farm is no longer able to supply enough. So then whoever, like the vendor needs to find another farm that is growing the same thing. But when you compare it, both of those products, they're a little bit different. And so now the seller can't actually sell both of them and say that they're the same product because their compositions from a botanical standpoint are slightly different because botanicals are highly complex. And so what they then do is they mix it together so that it's a quote unquote homogeneous mixture. And then they keep adding more farms. So then when a brand is like, hey, what farm did this come from or what region did this come from? The vendor has no idea, nor do they probably want to share how many farms they're basically aggregating this material from. So the traceability effectively becomes impossible at that point. And I think the story around the inefficiency of plant-based sourcing in terms of water usage and land usage, and then the waste that's also generated is something that is starting to be spoken about And hopefully we'll be a little bit more.
1: It's also these ingredients are finite, right? So tying your brand to one of these unknown ingredients that all of a sudden gets hot. Essentially, it's a commodities market. And, you know, you end up with supply chain issues around availability. The climate being what it is also has an impact to the availability, which sort of leads to what you're doing. So if you follow the money, there's a lot of venture money flowing into Beauty Biotech. You raised $78 million in a Series A, which is wildly impressive. But beyond that, it's also the people who participated. So Chanel and Givadon were part of that, which I think is a testament to what you're doing and the impact that it can have. I also believe the pandemic was an impetus for a new wave of innovation for things that we can't even contemplate. You know, what role do you think biotech is going to play in the future of beauty?
0: Well, first, I want to say, Kelly, you're like totally spot on with all of your observations throughout this interview. I know I shouldn't be surprised, but <laughs> thank you. But I am, Yeah. So yes, I mean, the impact of the pandemic, you're totally spot on. The partners that we brought on board were extremely deliberate for many of the reasons that you listed. But there is a clear distinction that I want to make about, I think, why Arkea garnered the interest and support that we did. So As I was developing effectively our business plan and preparing for our financing, one of the things that I had seen in that research process was that biotech was being viewed as basically a utilitarian manufacturing tool, right? You would see companies that would take ingredients in in our industry and other industries that were problematic from a supply chain standpoint in terms of their sourcing or their purity or the reliance on them. And they would basically design a microbe that would produce it so that it's now more sustainable, right? And hopefully they're managing that whole process so that the sustainability profile is orders of magnitude better. And that's obviously important and fantastic, right? We have massive issues like the palm oil crisis, which, by the way, was triggered by the interest in plant-based sourcing. And so companies trying to come up with sustainable alternatives through biotech to replace these ingredients is super critical. Archaea's perspective, though, is that we are not doing that. We are not doing one-for-one replacements. And it's not because we don't think that it's important. It simply is just not our business strategy. So the way that I describe Archaea is as a biology-first company, to contrast with chemistry, which has been the bedrock of the industry thus far. And to tell you what I mean by that more specifically is, like I have emerged and grown in a period of time where the tools to understand biology have matured over the last two decades. And this includes everything from, yes, like biotech, right? And fermentation, but that is a part of it, right? All the other tools that have come along, come up with it are things like DNA sequencing, DNA writing, protein design, protein engineering, bioinformatics, the microbiome, skin biology. All of these tools are new tools or more mature tools that the industry as we know it today did not evolve with. And so what Archaea is doing is basically taking all of these tools and building a company on top of them that is biology first. And so what that means is that we are developing new ingredients and technologies that are new. We're not intending to create replacements, but we're looking at biology as a new creative tool to create new possibilities. So our pitch was not about sustainability. It happens to be more sustainable. But that wasn't our primary pitch. Our pitch was, here's all of the new things that we can do with biology, because biology can do things chemistry cannot. And that is what we're building our company to do. And by the way, it's more sustainable. So it's heavily performance-driven and possibility-driven.
1: Can you share some of the innovations you're working on and the ones you're most excited about?
0: Yeah. So there's one that I think is a really great story to drive this point home so when i was doing my research i learned that scientists in the industry were really interested in hair as a material and what i mean by that is that if we think about what typically women put their hair through hair is quite resilient yes it gets damaged but think about putting our clothing through something like that day in and day out our clothing would disintegrate probably after 30 or 60 days and so scientists were fascinated at the material properties of hair, and they were trying to understand understand it better, but also how it can be harnessed to do new types of things. But here's the thing. In the 80s and 90s, we didn't even know what many proteins looked like. So hair being made up of 95% keratin, scientists were really interested in understanding how keratin proteins interacted And they had no way of doing that because the tools didn't really exist. I think we only had like 2,000 three-dimensional structures of protein that had been identified in 1999. But now things are really different, right? So effectively in the 80s and 90s, scientists determined that doing that was quote unquote too hard. And so the entire field of hair care science moved to surface chemistry, which is basically how do we coat the hair so that it feels a certain way to give you the performance that you want.
1: Hair was all
0: about stripping it and coating it. <laughs> exactly. Bingo. And so what I'm really excited to be able to do is to go back to those questions that were being the same questions that were being asked in the 80s and 90s, but with a whole new slate of tools. And so what we hope to be able to do is to actually think about how we can design proteins so that every amino acid in the hair is something that you can harness as a tool of self-expression or styling. And that just would not have been possible with the existing tool set and the technologies that were available then. And, you know, for this reason, it was really important to get a partner like Olaplex at the table, right? Because of our focus on hair care in this regard.
1: When you launched this, there was another ingredient that I think you're working on that I found fascinating that was, I guess, inspired by the Yep.
0: That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I do my research. (laughs) I'm so impressed, Kelly. Yeah. So let me tell you about this. So like brace yourself. It's going to like sound really weird, but I think, I hope you'll like be excited about what this means. So think about, before I go into the zebrafish, think about the whole tree of life, right? Like every natural molecule that exists on the planet. And if you think about where the beauty and the personal care industry has been sourcing ingredients from, it's been from petrochemicals. It's been from animals, which we've needed to phase out, so that's not even accessible. And it's been from plants. And so with everything shifting more and more towards plants, if you look at how much of the tree of life plants occupies, it's a small pizza sliver of that thing. With biotech, though, I think what's so exciting is that now we can access beyond just the pizza slipper basically the industry right now if they're committing to plant-based sourcing which will not be sustainable by the way even if they're coming up with replacements and the replacements are focused on plant-based replacements it is very restrictive it's such a small part of everything that we can learn from on this planet and so with biotech what's so interesting is we can start to access the entire tree of life ethically And sustainably. And so there are certain things that haven't even been accessible. And so zebrafish is a really interesting example. So their eggs have a very interesting protective mechanism against UV. And so the industry and its conventional ways of approaching this would harvest this, right, it's very extractive, it's extractive technologies that we rely on now. But you can't do that with fish, eggs or fish. So that has remained inaccessible. But with biotech, right, all you need is like the code of biology, which is DNA, and then you just read for which parts and code those molecules. And then what Arkea is doing is basically studying those, right? So how do we harness them? How do we improve upon them? How do we put them in a product where there is performance, right? An SPF 15, an SPF 30, an SPF 50? how do we do that? And so it's a very different palette, right? It's a completely different palette of opportunities. And so that's what I mean. In the case of keratins, you know, keratin exists on the market, it's animal derived, we can come up with a vegan version of it through biotech. But what we're also doing is we're using all of the technologies that have emerged to proliferate the palette of keratin. So how do we create a bunch of keratins that can do things that weren't possible before? And in the case of this, it's like, how can we learn from nature's mechanisms around UV filtering and start to create the next generation of UV boosters or UV filters and start to push the industry in that direction.
1: If I was a formulator or a product developer, I would be so excited and chomping at the bit to sort of get to this sort of new portfolio of technology and ingredients. So on that point, I'm not a product developer or a formulator, but how are you going to bring the innovation to market and what's the timeline? Because, you know, with a lot of ingredients, you need that commercial adoption. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we all need to make money.
0: Yeah, sure. (laughs) And I'd like to believe that, and I think that a lot of industries have sort of like lost this recently, but I would like to believe that we're coming full circle in the sense that people want to create businesses that do good and that create win for all scenarios. And so that's what we're focused on here at Arkea, right? How do we run a really successful business that is a win for consumers, that is a win for our industry industry? that is a win for the environment and even the investors who have been so generous in backing us and taking the risk on our vision here. So what is our timeline? So some of our technologies are going to be entering the market as soon as next year, which we are really excited about, so 2023. In some of these cases, there were just low-hanging fruits around opportunities that our biology-first kind of perspective, if you will, created a quick runway to And then other things will take many more years to be able to develop, and we really view this as a long-term vision. So the way that I would describe what's going to be happening in the market driven by Archaea is going to be kind of a slow build, right? How do we start to create biology-light stories so that we can inspire and trigger wonder from people around what is possible with this new tool set, and then start to introduce progressive new technologies more and more over time? In terms of like the tactical business model element of this, we are going to be selling our ingredients to the industry. It's really important to us that we sort of drive this shift to a biology-first future. We believe that it can be higher performing and more sustainable, and so we're really committed to that. In some cases, we might launch brands and products of our own because brands can have such a tremendous impact on moving an industry forward. And I'm really proud to say that that was one of the things that Mother Dirt did with the skin microbiome. There were so many people who were not willing to buy the technology because it was so different and they weren't sure if consumers were ready. But Mother Dirt, I think, was able to show that there was more readiness than expected and, if anything, created permission for other people who were also interested in this as a space. And that's an impact that, you know, might not be directly measurable through, like, just Mother Dirt. But across the industry, I think certainly felt its effect.
1: If I'm thinking back, I think Mother Dirt really kind of got the conversation about microbiome started in a way that kind of gave some framework around it. And then it's just kind of evolved to be very commonplace. So it is interesting the role brands have played in the marketing of ingredients on the supply side. It's an interesting but an expensive marketing lever, but I think it is really powerful. So you have an interesting perspective of the beauty industry, understanding the consumer facing side, but also the supply side of the industry. And you also, the most fascinating thing I think about you having read some of the interviews you've done in the past, is that you have the mind of a scientist, but you also think like a creative, which is a really interesting intersection. You know, the beauty industry has never been more competitive. I've been doing this for 25 years and people say, oh, it's never been easier to launch a beauty." brand. And I'm like, I don't know what planet you're on, but okay. I think it's never been more difficult. You know, what excites you and where do you think the opportunities lie?
0: Okay. So a lot is racing through my mind. Well, I get really excited about building new tools for the industry. And I get really excited about what people will do with those tools. And I can't even imagine today, like, what that will look like. But it's one of the things that I've loved about the beauty industry, which is that there is a highly creative, storytelling, imaginative, experience related element to the products that we use that play an important role in our lives. You know, if we think about a category like, vegan and beauty and even clean, it's all been associated with sort of very similar imagery, right? Like vague imagery of like plants and the color green and earth tones and all of that. And again, that's like one palette of tools and ingredients. And so I get really excited about like yeah, what happens if there's like a zebrafish technology out yeah. there, right? It's like kind of crazy or like, you know, these like designer keratins or I don't know, something from some like other animal. But of course, we like don't need to use the animal because we're able to ferment it. Like it sounds like funny even to talk about now, but I have no doubt that like the sources of inspiration for people who are thinking of future brands will be really like exciting to observe, which is why we're really passionate about our ingredients business because we see whole new opportunities for storytelling and product experience. Which is one of the exciting things in the industry.
1: One last question for you, and that is I think the pandemic, I don't know if it made science sexy, but it made people respect science in a very different way. And science is historically not somewhere, it was very male dominated, sort of scientific fields. And I really think it's exciting for sort of young women to see what you've done. And I think you've been very intentional to involve other female scientists in your team, right?
0: That's right. Yes.
1: (laughs) Do you see more interest in Gen Z gravitating towards science and kind of taking the path you did?
0: I don't know if I can say yet. There have been so many things from Gen Z that have been like wildly inspiring for me that make me extremely hopeful about the future. And one thing about our company and like our corporate branding and like our language that I think people are going to see more of is like we are creating an optimistic view of the future. There's so much like fatalism and like the world is crazy and like things are wild and we have nothing to look forward to and like. That is just like a narrative that is not helpful to keep perpetuating, right? If, if we're only thinking about the problems, I think that that hampers creativity and possibility. And so, you know, we are very focused on a positive and an optimistic view of the future. And I genuinely believe that people prefer to align with that rather than doomsday scenarios, especially the younger generation that have a different sense of urgency. They're asking like, why? A whole lot more. They're less willing to accept what they are being told as like, oh, this is what you should believe. But they're trying to understand what that recommendation or what those perspectives are coming from. And I think that that will be necessary. And I hope that what we're doing will trigger a positive effect in many ways, including the one that you are mentioning. We're young now, right? So less than a year old. So I think too early to tell. But you know, as you were talking about this question, I think one thing that I want to point out is that you know the beauty in the personal care industry, if you look at the numbers, spends less on R&D than other industries, less as a percentage of whatever, like operating budget or even as a percentage of revenue. And I think that that's really interesting. (laughs) And I wonder why. I didn't know that
1: data. And I find it really surprising. Surprising on one hand when you first said it. And then I guess not so much as I think about it a bit more.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say I had the same reaction. But then I had to like look back at my career where I was always on like the innovation side of things. And I just feel like my whole career has been look at brand X, Y, and Z. They did nothing innovative and they exited for approximately a bajillion dollars. So like, why do you need to invest in R&D? Because clearly consumers don't want it. And that is what I feel like I've faced my entire career, but I never believed that, obviously. I think there are shades of truth to that, but I think that things are changing. I think that there's so much that is saturated in the industry That is making consumers really question technologies and products. And for example, right, Olaplex, no one was saying, hey, I want a product that does X, Y, and Z. But here comes along Olaplex. And all of a sudden, it is a massive freaking market that they built. And so I think it's interesting. I think that right now with how saturated the market is, how exhausted the existing tool set is, how hard it is for brands to create distinction, plus the constraints that are happening around supply chain. There is a lot of pressure, I think, on this industry and the ability to just like whip up a brand and have it exit for the multiples that it did before, I think is not necessarily going to be as easy. Not that it was ever easy before, right? But I don't know that the narrative around like R&D doesn't matter is true. And with the pandemic, I think that it did scare people, right? I think that people all of a sudden were like, ugh, oh yeah, this incremental stuff that we're doing, it's just not going to cut it. Like, We need to hurry up. We need like bigger steps and we're willing to wait a little bit longer for that. And so in some sense, I think it was a wake up call as well. Well,
1: I'm very excited about what you're doing and Obviously, we want to follow the story, so stay in touch with us. And, you know, thank you for sharing. We try and cover the supply chain or the entire beauty value chain because, you know, very often brands and retailers get all the coverage, but it's really the supply chain and the value chain of the beauty industry that makes it all possible. So what you're doing is incredibly important and really inspiring. So thank you for sharing it.
0: Thanks, Kelly, for a great conversation. And I just want to underscore that last point that you made. You're totally right. Like the places that we source from make the ingredients, the ingredients make the formulas, the formulas make that finished product. And that is what we engage with. So if we don't start changing the tools that we work with, then the industry will always look the way that it does today. And I think that we all want to see it continue to evolve. And that's, I think, really exciting to us here at Arkea.
1: Absolutely.
0: Hi, I'm Jasmina, and for me, it's a matter of biology. At Archaea, we think about how the future of beauty will be about expressive biology, basically where our own biology is a tool of self-expression.
1: For Jasmina, it's a matter of biology. She's building a new foundation for the beauty industry that sees itself as part of nature, relying on the power of biology to access previously unimaginable product potential. With the spirit of a true visionary, she is unburdened by the status quo, rallying beauty industry insiders and outsiders through a shared vision of building something entirely new, driven by the desire to see a real revolution that can spark change across the entire beauty ecosystem. So in the end, it's a matter of biology. I'm Kelly Kovac see you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.